Section 2 of The Natural History, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Melissa Kingsbury. The Natural History, Volume 7, by Pliny the Elder. Translated by John Bostock and Henry Thomas Riley. Section 2, Book 31, Chapter 16 to 32. Chapter 16 Waters which throw up stones, Waters which cause laughter and weeping, Waters which are said to be curative of love. Theophrastus makes mention of the fountain of Marcias near the city of Selaene in Phrygia, which throws up masses of stone. Not far from it are two other springs, called Cleon and Yelon by the Greeks, from the effects which they respectively produce. At Sisychus is a fountain known as that of Cupido, the waters of which, Nucianus believes, cure those who drink thereof, of love. Chapter 17 Waters which preserve their warmth for three days At Crenon there are certain hot springs, though not at boiling heat, the water of which, mixed with wine, preserves it warm in the vessels for a period of three days. The same is the case, too, with the springs of Matiacum in Germany, beyond the river Renus, the water of which retains its boiling heat three days. The margin of these springs is covered with pumice, formed by the action of the water. Chapter 18 other marvelous facts connected with water. Waters in which everything will sink. Waters in which nothing will sink. If any of the above-mentioned facts have the appearance of being incredible to a person, I would have him know that there is no department of nature which presents greater marvels than this, independently of the numerous peculiarities which have already been mentioned in an earlier part of this work. Ctesias informs us that, in India, there is a lake of standing water, upon which nothing will float, every object instantly sinking to the bottom. Caelius says that in the waters of Lake Avernus, in our own part of the world, the very leaves of the trees even will sink, and, according to Varro, these waters are fatal to such birds as fly towards them. On the other hand, again, in the waters of Lake Apushidamus, in Africa, nothing will sink. The same, too, Apion tells us, with the fountain of Plintia in Sicily, as also a certain lake in Media, and the well of Saturn. The spring of Limira not unfrequently makes its way through the neighboring localities, and when it does so, is always portentous of some coming event. It is a singular thing, too, that the fish always accompany its waters on these occasions, the inhabitants of the adjoining districts being in the habit of consulting them by offering them food. When the fishes seize it with avidity, the answer is supposed to be favorable. But if, on the other hand, they reject the food by flapping it with their tails, the response is considered to be unfavorable. The river Oka in Bithynia runs close to Braesus, the name of a temple and of a divinity there worshipped. Persons guilty of perjury, it is said, cannot endure contact with its waters, which burn like flame. The sources, too, 
of the Tamaricus, a river of Cantabria, are considered to possess certain powers of presaging future events. They are three in number, and, separated solely by an interval of eight feet, unite in one channel, and so form a mighty stream. These springs are often dry a dozen times in the day, sometimes as many as twenty, without there being the slightest trace of water there, while, on the other hand, a spring close at hand is flowing abundantly and without intermission. It is considered an evil presage when persons who wish to see these springs find them dry, a circumstance which happened very recently, for example, to Larchus Licinius, who held the office of Legatus after his praetorship, for at the end of seven days after his visit, he died. In Judea, there is a river that is dry every Sabbath day. Chapter 19. Deadly Waters, Poisonous Fishes There are other marvels, again connected with water, but of a more fatal nature. Ctesias states in his writings that there is a spring in Armenia, the fishes in which are black, and if used as food, productive of instantaneous death. I have heard the same, too, with reference to the waters near the sources of the river Danuvius, until a spring is reached, which is near its main channel, and beyond which this poisonous kind of fish is not to be found. Hence it is that this spot is generally looked upon as the source of the river. The same, too, is reported of the Lake of the Nymphs, in Lydia. Near the river Phineus, in Achaia, there flows from the rocks a spring known as the Styx, the waters of which, as already stated, are instantly fatal. And not only this, but there are also small fish in it, Theophrastus says, which are as deadly as the water, a thing that is not the case with the fish of any other poisonous springs. Theopompus says that at the town of Chicri in Thrace, the waters are deadly. And Lycus states that at Leontium there is a spring, the waters of which are fatal at the end of a couple of days to those who drink thereof. Varro speaks also of a spring upon Mount Socrate, some four feet in breadth, the waters of which bubble forth at sunrise as though they were boiling. Birds, he says, which only taste thereof, fall dead close by. And then, besides, we meet with this insidious circumstance, that in some cases, waters of this nature are inviting even in their appearance. Those at Nonacris in Arcadia, for example the water of which fountain possesses no apparent quality to excite mistrust, though, owing to its intense coldness, it is generally looked upon as highly injurious, seeing that it petrifies as it flows. It is otherwise with the waters of Tempe in Thessaly, their baneful properties inspiring universal terror, and possessing the property of corroding copper even, and iron, it is said. This stream runs a short distance only, as already stated. And it is truly marvelous that, according to general report, the banks of its source are surrounded with the roots of a wild carob, always covered with purple flowers, while the margin is clothed with a green herbaceous plant of a peculiar species. In Macedonia, not far from the tomb of the poet Euripides, is the confluence of two streams, the water of one of which is extremely wholesome, that of the other, fatal. Chapter 20. Waters which petrify themselves, 
or cause other objects to petrify. At Perperena, there is a spring which petrifies the ground wherever it flows, the same being the case also with the hot waters at Aedepsus in Euboea. For there, wherever the stream falls, the rocks are continually increasing in height. At Yuremene, chaplets, when thrown into the waters of a certain fountain there, are turned to stone. At Colossae, there is a river, into the water of which, if bricks are thrown, when taken out, they are found changed into stone. In the mines of Syros, the trees petrify that are watered by the river, branches and all. In the caverns of Mount Coricus, the drops of water that trickle down the rocks become hard in the form of a stone. At Maeza, too, in Macedonia, the water petrifies as it hangs from the vaulted roofs of the rocks. But at Coricus, it is only when it has fallen that it becomes hard. In other caverns, again, the water petrifies both ways, and so forms columns, as we find the case in a vast grotto at Faucia, a town of the Cherosonisus of the Rhodians, the columns of which are tinted with various colors. These instances will suffice for the present. Chapter 21. The Wholesomeness of Waters It is a subject of inquiry among medical men which kind of water is the most beneficial. They condemn, and with justice, all stagnant, sluggish waters, and are of opinion that running water is the best, being rendered lighter and more salubrious by its current and its continuous agitation. Hence it is that I am much surprised that persons should be found to set so high a value as they do upon cistern water. These last give as their reason, however, that rainwater must be the lightest water of all, seeing that it has been able to rise aloft and remain suspended in the air. Hence it is, too, that they prefer snow water to rainwater, and ice again to snow, as being water subtilized to the highest possible degree, on the ground that snow water and ice water must be lighter than ordinary water, and ice, of necessity, considerably lighter. It is for the general interest, however, of mankind, that these notions should be refuted. For, in the first place, this comparative lightness which they speak of could hardly be ascertained in any other way than by the sensation, there being pretty nearly no difference at all in weight between the kinds of water. Nor yet, in the case of rainwater, is it any proof of its lightness that it has made its way upwards into the air, seeing that stones, it is quite evident, do the same. And then besides, this water, while falling, must of necessity become tainted with the vapors which rise from the earth, a circumstance owing to which it is that such numerous impurities are to be detected in rainwater, and that it ferments with such extreme rapidity. I am surprised, too, that snow and ice should be regarded as the most subtilized states of this element, in juxtaposition with the proofs supplied us by hail, the water of which, it is generally agreed, is the most pernicious of all to drink. And then, besides, there are not a few among the medical men themselves who assert that the use of ice water and snow water is highly injurious, from the circumstance that all the more refined parts thereof have been expelled by congelation. 
At all events, it is a well-ascertained fact that the volume of every liquid is diminished by congelation, as also that excessive dews are reproductive of blight in corn, and that hoarfrosts result in blast. Of a kindred nature, both of them, to snow. It is generally agreed, too, that rainwater putrefies with the greatest rapidity, and that it keeps but very badly on a voyage. Epigenes, however, assures us that water which has putrefied seven times and has often purified itself will no longer be liable to putrefaction. As to cistern water, medical men assure us that, owing to its harshness, it is bad for the bowels and throat. And it is generally admitted by them that there is no kind of water that contains more slime or more numerous insects of a disgusting nature. But it does not, therefore, follow that river water is best of all, or that, in fact, of any running stream, the water of many lakes being found to be wholesome in the very highest degree. What water, then, out of all these various kinds, are we to look upon as best adapted for the human constitution? Different kinds in different localities is my answer. The kings of Parthia drink no water but that of the Choaspis or of the Eualeus, and however long their journeys, they always have this water carried in their suite. And yet, it is very evident that it is not merely because this water is river water that it is thus pleasing to them, seeing that they decline to drink the water of the Tigris, Euphrates, and so many other streams. Chapter 22. The Impurities of Water Slime is one great impurity of water. Still, however, if a river of this description is full of eels, it is generally looked upon as a proof of the salubrity of its water, just as it is regarded as a sign of its freshness when long worms breed in the water of a spring. But it is bitter water, more particularly, that is held in disesteem, as also the water which swells the stomach the moment it is drunk, a property which belongs to the water at Troitzen. As to the nitrous and salsoacid waters which are found in the deserts, persons traveling across towards the Red Sea render them potable in a couple of hours by the addition of polenta, which they use also as food. Those springs are more particularly condemned which secrete mud, or which give a bad complexion to persons who drink thereof. It is a good plan, too, to observe if water leaves stains upon copper vessels, if leguminous vegetables boil with difficulty in it, if, when gently decanted, it leaves an earthy deposit, or if, when boiled, it covers the vessel with a thick crust. It is a fault also in water not only to have a bad smell, but to have any flavor at all even though it be a flavor pleasant and agreeable in itself, or closely approaching, as we often find the case, the taste of milk. Water, to be truly wholesome, ought to resemble air as much as possible. There is only one spring of water in the whole universe, it is said, that has an agreeable smell, that of Shabura, namely, in Mesopotamia. The people give a fabulous reason for it, and say that it is because Juno bathed there. Speaking in general terms, water, to be wholesome, should have neither taste nor smell. Chapter 23. The Modes of Testing Water 
Some persons judge of the wholesomeness of water through the agency of a balance. Their pains, however, are expended to little purpose, it being but very rarely that one water is lighter than another. There is, however, a more certain mode of ascertaining the difference in quality, that water being the better of the two, which becomes hot and cold with the greatest rapidity. In addition to which, not to keep poising a balance, after water has been drawn up in vessels, if it is good, it should gradually become warmer, they say, when placed upon the ground. Which water, then, of the several kinds will be most likely to be good and wholesome? Well water, no doubt, if we are to judge from the general use made of it in cities, but only in the case of wells in which it is kept in continual agitation by repeated drying and is refined by the earth acting as a filter. These conditions are sufficient to ensure salubrity in water. In regards to coolness, the well must be in a shaded spot, and the water kept exposed to the air. There is, however, one thing above all to be observed, a point, too, of considerable importance with reference to the continuance of the flow. The spring must issue from the bed of the well and not from the sides. To make water cold to the touch may be effected artificially even, either by forcing it to rise aloft or by making it fall from a height, and so come in collision with the air and become incorporated therewith. For in swimming, we find, when we hold our breath, the water is felt to be all the colder. It was the Emperor Nero's invention to boil water and then enclose it in glass vessels and cool it in snow, a method which ensures all the enjoyment of a cold beverage without any of the inconveniences resulting from the use of snow. Indeed, it is generally admitted that all water is more wholesome when it has been boiled, as also that water, when it has once been heated, will become more intensely cold than before. A most ingenious discovery. The best corrective of unwholesome water is to boil it down to one half. Cold water, taken internally, arrests hemorrhage. By keeping cold water in his mouth, a person may render himself proof against the intense heat of the bath. Many a person knows by his own everyday experience that water which is the coldest to drink is not of necessity the coldest to the touch this delightful property being subject to considerable fluctuations. Chapter 24. The Marchen Waters The most celebrated water throughout the whole world, and the one to which our city gives the palm for coolness and salubrity, is that of the Marchen Spring, accorded to Rome among the other bounties of the gods. The name formerly given to the stream was the Ayufeian, the spring itself being known as Pitonia. It rises at the extremity of the mountains of the Pelini, passes through the territory of the Marsi, and through Lake Fucinus, and then, without deviating, makes directly for Rome. Shortly after this, it loses itself in certain caverns, and only reappears in the territory of Tiber, from which it is brought to the city by an arched aqueduct nine miles in length. Ancus Marcius, one of the Roman kings, was the first who thought of introducing this water into the city. At a later period, the works were repaired by Quintus Marcius Rex, and more recently in his praetorship by Marcus Agrippa. 
Chapter 25 The Virgin Waters It was he, too, who brought the virgin waters from the by-road situate at the eighth milestone from the city, which runs for two miles along the Pridestine Way. Near these waters is the stream of Hercules, which the former shun to all appearance, and have thence obtained the name of virgin waters. On instituting a comparison between the waters of these streams, the difference above mentioned may be immediately detected, the virgin water being as much cooler to the touch as the marchen water is in taste. And yet, for this long time past, the pleasure of drinking these waters has been lost to the city, owing to the ambition and avarice of certain persons who have turned them out of their course for the supply of their country seats and of various places in the suburbs, to the great detriment of the public health. Chapter 26. The Method of Searching for Water. It will not be out of place to append here an account of the method employed in searching for water. Water is mostly to be found in valleys, whether formed by the intersection of declivities or lying at the lower part of mountains. Many persons have been of opinion that all places with a northern aspect are naturally provided with water, a point upon which it will not be amiss to explain the diversities presented to us by nature. On the south side of the mountains of Ircania, it never rains, and hence it is that it is only on the northeast side that they are wooded. As for Olympus, Osa, Paranassus, the Apennines, and the Alps, they are covered with wood on every side and abundantly watered with streams. Some mountains, again, are wooded on the south side, the White Mountains in Crete, for example. On this point, therefore, we may come to the conclusion that there is no rule which in all cases holds good. Chapter 27 Signs Indicative of the Presence of Water The following are indications of the presence of water. Rushes, reeds, the plant mentioned with reference to this point already, or frogs sitting squatted on a spot for a long time together. As to the wild willow, alder, vitex, reed, and ivy, all of which grow spontaneously on low grounds in which there is a settling of rainwater from higher localities, considered as indications of the presence of water, they are all of them of a deceptive nature. A sign much more to be depended upon is a certain misty exhalation, visible from a distance before sunrise. The better to observe this, some persons ascend an eminence and lie flat at full length upon the ground, with the chin touching the earth. There is also another peculiar method of judging upon this point, known only to men of experience in these matters. In the very middle of the heats of summer, they select the hottest hours of the day and observe how the sun's rays are reflected in each spot. And if, notwithstanding the general dryness of the earth, a locality is observed to present a moist appearance, they make no doubt of finding water there. But so intense is the stress upon the eyes in doing this that it is very apt to make them ache. To avoid which inconvenience, they have recourse to other modes of testing. They dig a hole, for instance, some five feet in depth, and cover it with vessels of unbaked pottery, or with a copper basin well-oiled. They then place a burning lamp on the spot, with an archwork over it of leaves, 
and covered with earth on the top. If, after a time, they find the pots wet or broken, the copper covered with moisture, or the lamp extinguished but not from want of oil, or if a lock of wool that has been left there is found to be moist, it is a sign of the presence of water, beyond all doubt. With some persons, it is the practice to light a fire on the spot before they dig the hole, a method which renders the experiment with the vessels still more conclusive. Chapter 28. Differences in Waters According to the Nature of the Soil The soil itself, too, gives indications of the presence of water by presenting white spots or an uniformly green appearance. For where the stratum is black, the springs are mostly not of a permanent nature. The presence of potter's clay always puts an end to all hopes of finding water, and the excavation is immediately abandoned, and I being carefully kept to the strata of the earth, to see whether, beginning with black mold, it successively presents the appearances above mentioned. The water is always fresh that is found in argillaceous soils, but in a stratum of tufa it is colder than elsewhere. This indeed being a soil which is highly approved of, as having a tendency to make the waters pure and extremely light to the stomach, and, by its action as a filter, to withhold all impurities. The presence of sand gives indications of springs, but of limited extent, and of water impregnated with slime, while that of gravel announces the presence of water of excellent flavor, but not to be depended upon for permanence. Male sand, fine sea sand, and charcoal earth yield a constant supply of water of a highly wholesome quality. But it is the presence of red stones that is the most to be depended upon, and the water found there is of the very finest quality. Craggy localities at the foot of mountains and silicious soils are equally good, in addition to which the water found there is cooler than elsewhere. In boring for water, the soil should always become more and more humid, and, the deeper the descent, with the greater facility the implements should penetrate. In deep-sunk wells, the presence of sulfurous or aluminous substances is fatal to the sinkers, a danger that may be guarded against by letting down a lighted lamp and ascertaining whether the flame is extinguished. When such is found to be the case, it is the practice to sink vent holes on each side of the well, both right and left, in order to receive and carry off the noxious exhalations. Independently of these evils, the air becomes heavier from the great depth merely of the excavation, an inconvenience which is remedied by keeping up a continual circulation with ventilators of linen cloth. As soon as water is reached, walls are constructed at the bottom but without cement, in order that the springs may not be intercepted. Some waters, the sources of which do not lie on elevated ground, are coldest at the beginning of spring, being maintained by the winter rains, in fact. Others, again, are coldest at the rising of the dog star. Peculiarities, both of them, to be witnessed at Bella in Macedonia. For in front of that city there is a marsh spring, which at the beginning of summer is cold, while in the more elevated parts of the city, the water is ice-cold in the hottest days of summer. The same is the case, too, at Chios, 
the water supply of the harbor and of the city occupying the same relative positions. At Athens, the water of the fountain Eniakrunos is colder in a cloudy summer than the well there in the Garden of Jupiter. While on the other hand, this last is ice cold during the drought of a hot summer. For the most part, however, wells are coldest about the rising of Arcturus. The water supply of wells never fails in summer, but in all cases it falls low during four days at the rising of the constellation above mentioned. Throughout the whole winter, on the other hand, many wells entirely fail, as in the neighborhood of Olynthus, for example, where the water returns in the early days of spring. In Sicily, too, in the vicinity of Messana and Male, the springs are entirely dry throughout the winter, while in summer they overflow and form quite a river. At Apollonia in Pontus, there is to be seen, near the seashore, a fountain which overflows in summer only, and mostly about the rising of the dog star. Should the summer, however, not be so hot as usual, its water is less abundant. Certain soils become drier in consequence of rain, that in the territory of Narnia, for example, a fact which Marcos Cicero has mentioned in his Admaranda, with a statement that drought is there productive of mud and rain of dust. Chapter 29. The Qualities of Water at the Different Seasons of the Year Every kind of water is freshest in winter, not so fresh in summer, still less so in autumn, and least of all in times of drought. River water, too, is by no means always the same in taste, the state of the bed over which it runs making a considerable difference. For the quality of water, in fact, depends upon the nature of the soil through which it flows, and the juices of the vegetation watered by it. Hence it is that the water of the same river is found in some spots to be comparatively unwholesome. The confluence, too, of rivers are apt to change the flavor of the water, impregnating the stream in which they are lost and absorbed, as in the case of the Borestines, for example. In some instances, again, the taste of river water is changed by the fall of heavy rains. It has happened three times in the Bosporus that there has been a fall of salt rain, a phenomenon which proved fatal to the crops. On three occasions also, the rains have imparted a bitterness to the overflowing streams of the Nilus, which was productive of great pestilence throughout Egypt. Chapter 30 Historical Observations Upon Waters Which Have Suddenly Made Their Appearance or Suddenly Ceased It frequently happens that in spots where forests have been felled, springs of water make their appearance, the supply of which was previously expended in the nutriment of the trees. This was the case upon Mount Hyamus, for example, when, during the siege by Cassander, the Gauls cut down a forest for the purpose of making a rampart. Very often, too, after removing the wood which has covered an elevated spot and so served to attract and consume the rains, devastating torrents are formed by the concentration of the waters. It is very important also for the maintenance of a constant supply of water to till the ground and keep it constantly in motion, taking care to break and loosen the callosities of the surface crust. At all events, we find it stated that upon the city of Crete, Arcadia by name, 
being raised to the ground, the springs and watercourses, which before were very numerous in that locality, all at once dried up, but that, six years after, when the city was rebuilt, the water again made its appearance, just as each spot was again brought into cultivation. Earthquakes are also apt to discover or swallow up springs of water, a thing that has happened, it is well known, on five different occasions in the vicinity of Phineus, a town of Arcadia. So, too, upon Mount Coricus, a river burst forth, after which the soil was subjected to cultivation. These changes are very surprising where there is no apparent cause for them, such as the occurrence at Magnesia, for instance, where the warm waters became cold, but without losing their brackish flavor, and at the Temple of Neptune in Caria, where the water of the river, from being fresh, became salt. Here, too, is another fact replete with the marvelous. The fountain of Arethusa at Syracuse has a smell of dung, they say, during the celebration of the games at Olympia, a thing that is rendered not improbable by the circumstance that the river Alpheus makes its way to that island beneath the bed of the sea. There is a spring in the Cherosonisus of the Rhodians, which discharges its accumulated impurities every nine years. Waters, too, sometimes change their color, as at Babylon, for example, where the water of a certain lake for eleven days in summer is red. In the summer season, too, the current of the Boristines is blue, it is said, and this, although its waters are the most rarefied in existence, and hence float upon the surface of those of the Ipanis. Though at the same time there is this marvelous fact, that when south winds prevail, the waters of the Ipanis assume the upper place. Another proof, too, of the surpassing lightness of the water of the Boristines is the fact that it emits no exhalations, nor indeed the slightest vapor even. Authors that would have the credit of diligent research in these inquiries assure us that water becomes heavier after the winter solstice. Chapter 31. The Method of Conveying Water the most convenient method of making a watercourse from the spring is by employing earthen pipes, two fingers in thickness, inserted in one another at the points of junction, the one that has the higher inclination fitting into the lower one, and coated with quicklime macerated in oil. The inclination, to ensure the free flow of the water, ought to be at least one-fourth of an inch to every hundred feet and if the water is conveyed through a subterraneous passage, there should be air holes let in at intervals of every two actus. Where the water is wanted to ascend aloft, it should be conveyed in pipes of lead. Water, it should be remembered, always rises to the level of its source. If, again, it is conveyed from a considerable distance, it should be made to rise and fall every now and then, so as not to lose its motive power. The proper length for each leaden pipe is ten feet, and if the pipe is five fingers in circumference, its weight should be sixty pounds, if eight feet, one hundred, if ten, one hundred and twenty, and so on, in the same proportion. A pipe is called a ten-finger pipe when the sheet of metal is ten fingers in breadth before it is rolled up, a sheet one-half that breadth giving a pipe of five fingers. 
In all sudden changes of inclination in elevated localities, pipes of five fingers should be employed in order to break the impetuosity of the fall. Reservoirs, too, for branches should be made as circumstances may demand. Chapter 32. How Mineral Waters Should Be Used I am surprised that Homer has made no mention of hot springs, when on the other hand, he has so frequently introduced the mention of warm baths, a circumstance from which we may safely conclude that recourse was not had in his time to mineral waters for their medicinal properties, a thing so universally the case at the present day. Waters impregnated with sulfur are good for the sinews, and aluminous waters are useful for paralysis and similar relaxations of the system. Those, again, which are impregnated with bitumen or nitre, the waters of cutila, for example, are drunk as a purgative. Many persons quite pride themselves on enduring the heat of mineral waters for many hours together. A most pernicious practice, however, as they should be used but very little longer than the ordinary bath, after which the bather should be shampooed with cold water and not leave the bath without being rubbed with oil. This last operation, however, is commonly regarded as altogether foreign to the use of mineral baths, and hence it is that there is no situation in which men's bodies are more exposed to the chances of disease, the head becoming saturated with the intensity of the odors exhaled, and left exposed, perspiring as it is, to the coldness of the atmosphere, while all the rest of the body is immersed in the water. There is another mistake also of a similar description, made by those who pride themselves upon drinking enormous quantities of these waters, and I myself have seen persons, before now, so swollen with drinking it, that the very rings on their fingers were entirely concealed by the skin, owing to their inability to discharge the vast quantities of water which they had swallowed. It is for this reason, too, that these waters should never be drunk without taking a taste of salt every now and then. The very mud, too, of mineral springs may be employed to good purpose, but to be effectual, after being applied to the body, it must be left to dry in the sun. It must not be supposed, however, that all hot waters are of necessity medicated. Those of Suggestion Sicily, for example, of Larissa, Troas, Magnesia, Melos, and Nipara. Nor is the very general supposition a correct one that waters, to be medicinal, must of necessity discolor copper or silver no such effect being produced by those of Patavium, or there being the slightest difference perceptible in the smell. End of Section 2 Recording by Melissa Kingsbury, melissakingsburyvo.com